So, welcome everyone. And uh, so, title like Sacred Cosmos can carry a lot and suggest a lot. And, um, you know, the world, the political world, the natural world, the environmental world, social world, mm, life, death, birth. <laughs> mm, what are we living in? What are we living in? And you realize you probably would recognize the fact that we're living in many different worlds, our family world, our inner world, a world of our thoughts, all of our concerns, geopolitical world, social world, uh, world of biosphere world. Mm. And there may be more that we haven't really plugged into yet. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, this is the cosmos. Mm. The, the term that covers all of it is, is calling cosmos because you're not locating planet earth particularly but that that can also be there it's a all-encompassing term that which we can experience and and are uh, participating in we are participating in it we're not separate from it so we recognize the world is arising in our bodies and minds and we are not separate from we're participating in it we might begin to recognize that the um, failings and mishaps and pains and sorrows that we notice in the world around us always are resonating in our own nervous system. And with a bit more introspection, we might begin to consider that perhaps the confusions in people's minds are having a profound effect on, you know, everything else. It sort of adds up, doesn't it, really? So where's the separation? Mm. And yet, of course, uh, the mindset is that we are separate from it. We're sort of walking around on top of the planet, and it's it's uh, an object out there. We're separate from it. And that gives us the right to do what we like with it. And all the tragedy that occurs from that basic, enormous split and dysfunction, which then starts with the Earth goes on to the animals, then goes on to people in other countries, then goes on to people in my city that I don't really get on with, then leads to domestic violence, leads eventually to um, a split between my uh, thoughts and my emotions, and, and so on. So something doesn't encompass all of it. The unfortunate energies that arise from the split, dysfunctional, broken state and cooperate with it are, first of all, exclusion, withdrawal from the participation, withdrawal from it, separate from it, and then domination, so this attempt to control it, dominate it. This goes down to even the way we relate to our own emotions and um, bodily instincts and exploitation to get what we feel will be the best. But of course, that judgment is coming from the dysfunctional, broken state. So when we look from that state, then mm, what seems best is get pleasure for me, putting it crudely. Mm -hmm. So this is the, this breaking is, is the, called avijja in Buddhism, ignorance, not being in touch with the whole picture, not being in touch with 
what's called the right view. You know, there is that which is given, that which is offered, that which is sacrificed. There is results of good and bad deeds. We're living in a mutual cosmos, mutually interdependent cosmos. How does this sort of, how does it all arise? Well, we might say, um, you know, like if you consider, say, prenatal life, you know, the um, early, the earliest cell, the egg, the fertilized egg, what's it, what does it do? It has an intention. It's, it's moving, you know, in accordance with chemical signals. It's definitely got intentionality. It's got attention. It sort of, it navigates towards, and then it contact, it implants in the womb wall. If it doesn't implant, goodbye, no birth. So it's got a pre-cognitive form of intelligence, which is has a certain intentionality towards what? Towards ground. Where do I find the ground where I can rest in, where I find the warm, safe place? And it's got some kind of energetic attention that, that not thinking it, not seeing no sense organs yet, but it steers, yeah. And it's it's responsive to the chemicals or whatever's going on in the in the womb, and it steers and it plants, it makes contact, and therefore then birth can arise. You know, birth process can then take place, or the beginning of that process can take place. And so, what's the search? The search is for a safe ground to rest in. This particular instinct stays with us. Yeah. I think you've got to remember nothing really dies out. It just gets, other stuff gets layered onto it. So the earliest experience, <laughs> yeah, which is before our memories for most of us, I'm sure, is of that you know, search for safe ground. And this becomes the womb. And that replicates as we um, are properly born, if we are born, some creatures die in the womb or are miscarried or misconceived or even experience trauma within the womb where they can't find that safe ground, something happens, or the mother's chemicals are producing, you know, toxic material. So insecurity happens at a very chemical, energetic level. Now, birth arises, creature, little one is born, what does it look for? safe ground again mother's body right and taken away from the mother to get traumatized because they couldn't find a safe ground safe warm ground where they're getting nourishment and really then this kind of pattern is going on throughout our life even though other it's getting more complex and more um, abstract in some ways but basically the sentient experience is a search for safe ground, and there's something deeply disturbing when that can't be attained. In a state of deep disturbance, then all kinds of reactions step in. Frustration, rage, confusion, uh, search for anything that will give safe ground, any old thing will do, because it's so primary. And so for beings, that can be addictions of various kinds. Something they can bury themselves in. We can't find a responsive 
mutually experienced ground, we find one that's dead, like a drug. Drug can't care for you. But it definitely gives me a feeling, as something I can go to, get contact with, get established in, and my world arises within that drugged experience. Of course, you have various things, you know, alcohol, um, psychedelics, and they produce a particular world or domain that you, you abide in, functioning or whatever in. Mm-hmm. And so you see these similar things. And, there's, and of course, there's an intention, primary intention is safe ground and where I can get fed. Attention, where in all this is the possibility of that happening? Okay, look around, human, well, you're in a very difficult human condition, look around the other human beings, they're not going to give it to me, you know, it's too dangerous here, she's crazy, he's violent, he's drunk, she's absent, uh, I'll get into this instead, give me a, something else. So addictive behaviours occur as a kind of um, surrogate you know, of various kinds. And so these are things that happen to people in search of safe ground. And, and the fact that it gets removed, that is, maybe the parent dies, maybe there's an accident of some kind, maybe, maybe, maybe plenty of things, but it doesn't really matter what it did, the same result of not being able to find safe ground occurs, and the being who's experiencing that will just wildly search for anything that will provide that. It's called clinging, padana in Buddhism. And there are, of course, course, sophisticated ways in which that can be playing out. Um, One is uh, dogma, uh, dogmatic views, dogmatic political views, dogmatic religious views, dogmatic, you know, anything. There's a holding to that which kind of eliminates objective or dispassionate inquiry. Yeah, and fix on that. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's clinging to views mm. and um, clinging to sense possibilities, clinging to views, um, clinging to an identity that feels accomplished and perfected. This is the narcissist. You know, things are going wrong. I'm wonderful. Why is everybody so you know, crazy, and you get uh, narcissistic, uh, you know, clinging strongly to the sense of their own infallibility, even though they're being proved to be infallible. So you get this this potential, and it goes against all reason, because the clinging instinct is a mechanism that is, is beyond rationality. And this was the main mechanism the Buddha felt he had to approach, and, and unplug, and he, and he says you could, you can do it. That and what he's saying, one of the one of the epithets he used for uh, many cases, you know, actually for, for Nibbana itself, was this the safe island, the island you can go to, safe place. You know? And if you're not at that place yet, then you create. <laughs> let's have the safe human environment. Mm-hmm. which is based upon morality and sharing. Therefore, we will kind of embed in that for now, and that will give us enough for platform where we could do some bit more work on the 
you know, the, the agitations and the fears and whatever is going on. And of course, he said, once you've got that, even more refined than that is to make your own heart, your own chitta, your own awareness a safe place because you've been able to eliminate um, violence and hatred and craving and clean that out. And how do you do that? Well, you find a safe place. You find the root of a tree. You find a safe ground, with nice strong ground beneath you, space around you. You feel your body breathing in and out. You don't have to be anybody. You don't have to prove anything. You don't have, it's going to come to you whether you're good or bad. You know, just sit back and be with that. So this is going to give you a feeling of you are definitely included. You're not an ex- has to struggle to be included. Have to prove something to be included. Have to do good in order to be accepted. Boom! You are accepted by your own living presence. <laughs> yeah, and so let's then you know this is really you get to that. And then you're finding some sense of comfort and safety where you can actually view experience from a pretty, pretty deeply resourced and, and cool and dispassionate place. And you begin to review sensations, impressions, volitions, intentions, and say, you know, this isn't doesn't this is isn't going to that satisfactory safe place. It's it's a it's a broken wheel. It's dukkha. Dukkha. Dukkha meant something like a, um, it's referred to like um, like a broken axle, would be dukkha. It, it's, it doesn't quite work. The wheel is broken. It's incomplete. It can't take you where you need to go. It's a broken wheel. And so actually there's a wheel that will take you where you need to go, and it's called the wheel of Dhamma. This is a safe place. It's a refuge. Again, very potent term, dealing exactly with this dilemma. Where's the safe ground? Well, refuge. How about that? At least there's a reference point. Not belief system, not something you've got to strain to get to, not something that's going to disapprove of you and throw you out. If you're not good enough, this is a refuge. Welcome in. Settle yourself in there and begin to put aside the fear, the agitation, the compulsions, because you are on safe ground. So that was this kind of thing. And he's saying, he didn't turn people away. He said, I don't find fault with the world, the world finds fault with me. I don't turn people away. I don't even turn evil people away. Criminals I don't turn away. Kings I don't turn away. Paupers I don't turn away. Lepers I don't turn them away. I do not turn people away. (laughs) I include. And if they can't do it, then they can leave, you know. So that's the kind of thing, you know. The Buddha's dispensation very generous. Uh, and he had, the, he had the resources to be able to offer that. Because he wasn't searching for praise or reward or wasn't frightened by people's anger or fear or, or violence. Mm. He got tremendous safety in himself. The safety of the unconditioned. So when we see something like one of your quotes here, what's the origin and ceasing of the world? This is the broken, dysfunctional world. Okay, the dukkha world, put it that way. Dependence on I unformed I, consciousness arises, the meeting of the three, that is the I, the form, and, and the consciousness is called contact. Contact has condition. The feeling arises. Contact means feeling arises. You get, uh, 
right? You feel something. Otherwise, you haven't actually contacted yet. With feelings as condition, not as craving arises. So if there is feeling, there's the potential for more of that pleasant feeling or craving to have another feeling. Right? With craving as a condition, clinging. That is, which one craves one, then this mechanism closes down on that which we find agreeable or that which we find disagreeable, closes down in order to throw it away or suppress it, deny it, exclude it. Take the disagreeable feeling, shut it down. And if I can't do anything about it, then I'll numb out or distract myself from to something else. Can't manage unpleasant feeling. But it's clinging. Occurs and clinging doesn't necessarily mean you 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 favor the thing, it just means there's an operation that occurs that localizes and tries to, to fixate one's attention on a partial partial and local aspect of the entirety okay it's a long phrase but what's happening is pleasant then get onto that make it stay what's happening feels unpleasant get onto that shut it out clinging to suppress or exclude let me go somewhere else turn my attention somewhere else so that i'll get the agreeable and this is mostly not physical. It's mostly psychological or emotional. And uh, dependent on each individual being, that search for psychological, emotional, agreeable experience, not necessarily, we're not talking about, you know, orgies of a just sense of feeling, you know, steady stream of warm, comfortable, non disruptive stuff is happening to me. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and I can I can switch it on whenever I want. <laughs> Even better. Because <laughs> yeah. I don't want that unpleasant stuff. I don't want to feel the, the you know the misery or the or the awkwardness or the embarrassment or the exclusion or being seen as a feeble or pathetic or blamed or accused. I don't want any of that, thank you. So I just get into the agreeable stuff. So a natural instinct can have some potentially disastrous ramifications unfortunately not just in terms of addiction in terms of massive blinders let me not notice the stress around me so this definitely occurs let me not notice the people on the other side of the tracks. You don't notice. <laughs> you name it. And so then we persons tend to have a narrowed view and bury themselves in their in their comfort territories. Mm-hmm. What's the problem with that? Shouldn't we be comfortable? Sounds like a good idea. Mm-hmm. But at what price? And uh yeah, and is that comfort going to last? Mm. So, a general statement is: sense pleasures of limited comfort don't last very long. Can create a huge amount of jealousy, um, grasping, criminality, exclusivity. Yeah, 
you won't get in mine. Mm. Don't share it. Mm. Mm. Hoard. So that in the future I'll be able to have sense sense pleasure. Let me get a billion. Well, a billion, maybe two billion would be better. <laughs> so that in the future I'll have lots and lots of gratifying, uplifting experiences. So you know, basically <laughs> you get the economy behind that, you know, and uh, the competitive uh, hoarding economy goes behind that because it's mounts the huge damage and um, inequality. Mm. So it's a big ramifications, isn't it? And the belief is this, but this is, this is absolutely the way, this is the way the world works. You know, this is the way we operate as human beings. This is a true society. And this is the way good for us. Say, well, actually, I like the idea, you know, if you're patriotic, you know, my country is great. You know, if you look around, you know, there's a lot of people who aren't looking so happy. Oh, well, they're weirdos, they're losers, they're criminals, they're addicts. They're... Well, why are they criminals and addicts? Because they're not getting enough of the good stuff. That's why. <laughs> and you've got like, you've got a very small margin of getting a huge colossal amount of other resources. Mm. Okay. Well, I sort of moved off on that one, but as a condition of becoming. Well, this is not the most kind of rather washy word, becoming. What's that's that about? Mm. Um, well, also phrased existence. The Pali word is bhava. And uh, becoming or existence means the formation of an identity. So... And though we may assume, oh, you know, I have this fixed identity, I am Ajahn Sujito, I've been that for so many years. Uh, no, no, no. And you're looking at actually psychologically, you recognize there are, there are quite a few identity experiences that are occurring. Um, you know, so these can be from time to time the waking up experience and then not feeling like top of the world great. Mm. There can be the feeling of having made a mistake, mm. pathetic inadequate, feeble, um, definitely haven't made a mistake, you know, guilty, wrong, bad, stupid person, exclude them. Uh, uh, you know, or having, you know, success, wonderful person, mind, great. So these energies uh, that come from anchoring onto phenomena give rise to these identification experiences. You could say self-referencing. There's a referencing to the clinging occurs, I don't cling, the clinging occurs, and then the sense of self arises out of that, out of that clung experience. So clinging is just a mechanism. This is another mechanism. Out of that clung experience, then there's a sense of an identity arises. I've got some ground. Of course, it's 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 wrong ground because it's it's crumbling, and and seized upon. It's not safe given ground. It's wrong ground, but based upon that, this illusory identity arises because it's based upon crumbling and and uh, um, 
confused ground ground that clinging provides so yeah i'm fixing i am this i am wonderful i am terrible i am stupid i'm guilty i'm loved i'm hated i can never get it together you know rises around these whatever is clung to and as i say quite a lot of what is clung to is unpleasant so the identity experience can be one of being a rather inadequate failed person or someone who's not quite got it together yet or isn't ever going to get it together yet depending on what particular unpleasant quality is being fixated upon now i'm suggesting that with this feeling and clinging is not purely about um, sense contact but about internal mental contact so you know we meet discordant energies we meet passions we meet you know we meet our our assumptions i'm not as good as i should be i'm not you know so there's a clinging to to trying to become a person who's who's comfortable and secure and stable trying to become a person who's comfortable and secure and stable sounds like a good idea it is a good idea but this is the wrong process the clinging process doesn't take you there but because of that clinging process, yeah. then clinging is clinging to unstable territory. So the unstable territory becomes the foundation for an unstable person. Mm-hmm. And the unstable person doesn't want to understand an unstable person. I'm fine, you know, I just have one of these and one of those because they're actually being made stable by various forms of things to cling to, their their political views or their religious views or their creature comforts or da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, things that people, identity adheres to in order to boost itself up. And, of course, all of those are of the nature to crumble and therefore the person's back in the same situation where, of course, the most um, tenacious areas of clinging are views and opinions, because, you know, you can keep them going. They're just completely abstract. They look like they won't crumble. If I believe the moon's made out of green cheese and that makes me feel the moon loves me, I can sustain that view. (laughs) And even if somebody says, no, it's not, so no, you don't understand it. The moon really loves me. No, no, it doesn't. It's just a lump of rock. No, for you it's a lump of rock. You don't understand the spirit of the moon. It loves me. I'm fine, you know. So you hold to that that view. Views think always um, kind of obscure other other forms of um, input, and so. Of course, it would be national views. We're the greatest people. Um, um, you know, our religion is the best one. Infallible path to truth and peace and love. Um, we might have to kill a few of you to, who are disturbing this view, but we're going to sustain this view. So then we become secure, solid, right. And there's a lot of terrible things that can get done in the name of right, aren't there? 
So birth, one then becomes formed in this particular process, and then aging death, it's both the physical aging and death, and also the crumbling of one's fixed ground, because it's based upon ground that's not fixed. Now, so the, they're saying, well, craving, if the craving is switched off, then this whole process doesn't have to take place. And how does craving get switched off? Well, if you go right back in the sequence, you can see, well, if we sort of start with, you know, intention at contact, what do you contact? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Contacting good people. Mm. Therefore, your feelings of fear and inadequacy are quelled. You're contacting people who don't hurt you or blame you, guide you, support you look after you, encourage you, maybe correct you, but in a compassionate way. Therefore, a lot of your compulsions begin to dry up because you're getting what you need. It's a very basic thing. So there can be, if you like, a a kind of a, a reality that we can touch or we can be part of that doesn't go along this track. And that can be itself can be purified and clarified to the point when it just becomes... Um, completely intimate, inseparable, because, of course, even good friends can pass away. There can be misunderstandings amongst the best of friends. Um, so refining it to the point when you're coming, using it as a platform, you would have said, this is the basic platform. What do you develop? You develop, first of all, mutuality. As with... And then you develop from that, you develop respect. Then you develop morality, develop loving kindness. Mm. Develop loving kindness, the heart begins to bloom. These qualities are not sensorial. They're purely elicited from the chitta, from the heart. And the point is that when there is safety and security, uh, and truthfulness by itself the chitta, the heart begins to open and it brings forth beautiful qualities such as loving kindness, respect, forgiveness compassion and this is the arising of, of course, something more sacred that people can participate in experience now we come down some quotes here, I think somewhere or the other. Ah, there it is, number 10. Mm. This is a particular sequence of teachings the Buddha gave to newcomers. So, you know, people think, well, the Buddha taught meditation, Four Noble Truths, mindfulness. Yeah, but he didn't start with that. Mm. that that's kind of a little bit down the track. Um, and it's unfortunate that um, we think that's the beginner's practice. Now, Beginner's practice is entering into the mutual domain. So you begin actually opening the cosmos instead of the fixation on me and mine. Because this then means that in meditation, the more you've trained in this way, there's less of that me trying to have some special experience. Because the me sense is being softened into an us experience or into something more open. In the human domain, 
this openness of the chitta is called we. And it's good to bear in mind that really there's only two valid pronouns, I and we. You is, what's that? (laughs) What does you bring up? An object of clinging, because if you become we, then of course, yeah, that's a transition. But we means it's a mutual input. So two subjectivities colliding, cooperating, maybe we're in disharmony. Yeah. So that's a valid pronoun. You is a kind of a dead pronoun because it means you're an object completely separate. So I and we say, so if you get a sense of you, it's a good thing to, what am I talking about? I'm talking about something in my mind that I think she is or he is or they are. Check it out. Because until we get to we, there's not going to be any harmony here. You know, it's not right and wrong. You can't do right and wrong on that level. You've got a sense of disharmony. Okay, are we both are we in disharmony? Yes, we are. What's happening? Where the ground, the common ground we can stand on? Not that this common ground. We might say we are suffering. Okay, that's good. Then we know where to start. We've been hurt, yes. We want happiness, yes. You know, we want security, yes. Uh, we fear, yes. <laughs> Common ground, okay. So, what I'm saying, right, go back to this. First point, generosity. Generosity, do um, you want to imagine that? Giving donations. But it's the different kinds of generosity, material things, yeah. Um, hospitality. Come in. You're welcome. Mm. Hearing of medical. You need some help. Mm. And giving of dhamma. Advice. Companionship. Truthfulness. Sharing of truth. It's it. And of all of these, the most important one is the giving of truth. The giving of dhamma. The giving of truth. Because then we, re- oh yes, now we really are on common ground. And then, based upon that, on virtue, because of this, we have an alignment. Because if we have touched into Dhamma, truth, then you recognize, well, truth is an inclusive experience. This it was to the Buddhist people, to the people at that time. Because if it's true, it doesn't exclude anything. Otherwise, it's only half true. (laughs) So it has to be inclusive. So what causes exclusivity? Well, immorality. You don't count. You don't matter. I don't respect you. I lie to you. I cheat on you. I violate you. And this is when there isn't Dhamma. Gift of Dhamma happens. So then seeing how is that occur? Says because sense pleasures, people get drop Dhamma and go for the goodies. Mm -hmm. And therefore seeing the corruption of that real hazard of that and sees the advantage of renunciation, just 
unclutter, live lean, share. Very basic message. Uh, you don't know if this is kind of causing extremely crystalline points. The place this is. Then, if you've done that, then it's possible your mind, your jitta, your heart will be in a good condition in order to receive the Four Noble Truths. Till that, you're not in the right shape yet. So then, you know, what's this Dhamma? Well, gift of Dhamma. It was uh, one of the uh, primary um, realities of the uh, of the people of that time, as is people of most eras, is what's the big picture? What's the big picture? There's a, some overall picture. Of, you know, I got born, there's this stuff out there moving around that I didn't create, operating in its own way. And there's things growing and things dying and it's sort of operating. There's some kind of system here that where stuff is being born and changing and seasons are coming and going. How's all this happened? There must be some organizing principle that's keeping it going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this organizing principle is called Dhamma. The Hindus had two different words for Rutta which I think is where we get our word ritual from or rite, which is a sacred um, actions that help the participating human to keep the cosmos on track. And Dhamma, the other word for it. So Dhamma is both the organizing principle of manifest cosmos and also Whatever we can do as participating, because we're part of the cosmos, and somebody's asking, what are we here for? Well, we're not great runners. We don't fly very well. We can think and we can produce prayer and we can produce love and we can produce these heart qualities. That's our bit, producing heart qualities, because that's what humans do best. Love, wisdom, and morality are our basic products, you know, that no other creatures do in the same way. So I think, well, actually, bring out the human chitta. That will be our participation in the cosmos. Uh, How do you do that? Well, you know, we will address the divine energies that are somehow keeping this whole thing going. So therefore, the divine energies are sensed and evoked as part of what we sense, I'm belonging to a, a sentient, responsive cosmos, not just stuck in some flat world that I'm trapped in, but I'm participating in intelligent, sentient consciousness, a uh, cosmos that has quite a high um, energy to it. Like it's not, it's not poisonous, it's healthy. You know, it's got some stuff's happening in it, but basically the thing keeps going and feeding and fertilizing and nourishing everything. This is a pretty amazing thing. There's obviously some big benevolent energy in this stuff that because I can't create it, everything is kind of working pretty good. So some benevolent forces out there. So there we go, and we can address those. So we address those through the medium of the divine. And of course, this has been happening. They weren't the only people who figured it out or assumed that or sensed it. Pretty much everybody across the planet was sensing it. And there are different ways of 
talking about it. You know, talked about spirits of the mountains, spirits of the trees, spirits of the earth, creating mythologies, um, and so on and so on and so on. Gods, goddesses, uh, and in the in the Vedic people, Aryan people, there various kinds of many many levels of cosmology we participate in, and they're right there in the Buddhist suttas. And people sometimes feel a bit uncomfortable about that. They're not very mindful. This isn't this isn't about meditation. It's always bunkum, you know, um, you know, pixies and elves or goblins and things like that. So ridiculous and uh, you know <laughs> yeah well maybe they were right you know maybe the problem is your problem you can't pick it up because <laughs> how come everybody in the world used to have this going for them until mechanism took over and we basically sacked <laughs> cut that lot off we shut it down as is our definitely our capacity to shut things down that we don't find uh, agreeable and why don't we find it agreeable because if you live in a participating cosmos you're not the king of it you're just a participating humble supplicant who has to behave properly in a, in a, in the cosmos now if you're the lord of it you don't have to behave properly if you've got a device that can do it for you who cares yeah. this is the massive ramping up of egotism that mechanism uh, uh, support we don't have to be humble anymore. We can conquer everything. We can dominate everything. Now, and of course, in a kind of previous worldview, no, you couldn't. You've got to have respect. You've got to, there are taboo seasons where you can't animals. There are particular qualities you have to present. There are sacrifices you have to make. There is offering to deities that you have to do. Otherwise, things can get bad. And if you look down the line, Somewhere in one of these quotes, you'll see that Buddha himself pointing out that when kings are righteous, royal vassals are righteous, the Brahmins and households are righteous. So if people behave properly from the top down, the sun and the moon proceed on course. Okay? Human behavior affects the sun and moon. <sighs> Ridiculous. Seasons and years are on course. What's that got to do with human behavior? The winds blow on course independently. That's nothing to do with our virtue, surely. It doesn't matter what we do. The gods are not upset. Sufficient rainfalls, the crops ripen in season if they're righteous. If they're not, the opposite happens. What's that got to do with anything? You know, it doesn't it's just, you know, put fertilizer on it, that'll make it grow. Doesn't matter what we do. Okay, what about climate change? Right, where did that come from? Kings and well, kings and ministers, but presidents and executives of corporations were not righteous. <laughs> the servants were not righteous, so it goes all the way down. We fed into a consumer culture, therefore, the seasons are no longer dependable. The rain doesn't come, or it comes in floods. Hurricanes blow, crops dry up, farmers go broke. Definitely, maybe they were telling the truth. It wasn't just, you know, superstitious bunkum, but maybe they were telling the truth. And we just do shut down to acknowledge that our behavior has an effect. And say, yeah, I don't go out and, and you know, I don't go out and cause the winds to blow. I don't, I don't, my behavior doesn't cause it to rain. Well, you look down the line, you're saying, yeah, yeah, because of that and that, because of 
consuming and burning that leads to that you know <laughs> so the divine is a is a summary of of a channel that summarizes you know if you are behaving properly then there's this lifting into a respectful an ego diminution within the manifest world and that will lead to the reduction of greed and hatred your behaviors anyway and so you know uh, it's there isn't it so and certainly in the suttas you see this and uh, you think well it's just a nice idea until you see the buddha's talking to some of these devas the buddha is respectful but the devas also say this person's gone beyond us we're the we're the forces that keep the physical universe going but this fellow's gone beyond that so they're respectful towards him and so you sometimes see these devas actually these heavenly beings you know expressing their respect for the, the buddha and And if you look down your list, you'll probably see some of those. I did put some in this morning for you to look at. Where one of the great Brahma gods, so it's a kind of supreme deity, and he's saying, "This is, you know, this is how the Buddha's Dhamma uh, brings around happiness through through morality and through virtue, through restraint, and through practices of mindfulness." It's in the the 18th Sutra of the Diganikaya. Look at that. So whether these creatures exist or not depends on what you mean by exist. Does a dream exist? When you wake up at night, a nightmare and your heart is pumping and the fear is soaking you, does that, does that nightmare exist or not? Can you feel it? Yeah. Well, we call it some kind of existence. Just because it's not the physical doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Again, this is another hangover from the mechanist scientific age. We don't have a device that we we can measure it in. It doesn't exist. If you can't knock it with a machine, it doesn't exist. If you can't, so does a nightmare exist? Well, do you feel it? Do you get contact with it? Does it arouse you? Well, we'll say to that extent, it exists in terms of the Buddhist analysis of becoming existence. You become the frightened person. You become, right? So to that extent, it exists. So we see these are kind of, what are these experiences then? These are energies moving through the psyche, we would say nowadays. Right? Energies moving through the psyche. And um, this is another missing piece in our general worldview. We have materiality, physical sensations, we have thoughts. Now, in traditional Indian culture, Chinese culture, many of these cultures, you have energy, prana. Prana is the um, one form of it. It's the life force energy that's associated with breathing, prana life force energy in buddhism you've got it as pana 
So you get anapanasati. So it's the life force energy that's associated with breathing in and out. And it's in your body, moving through your body. And it's not a sensation. Um, it's a vitality, put it that way. Uh, it's not necessarily like Kundalini shooting up your spine. It's just the basic vitality that's supporting consciousness. Mm. It's bound up with consciousness. Mm. So, and then this life force quality, life force energy, you know, in that understanding, this and the, the movement within that brings around physical birth. Like, when you look at what is it that's telling that little egg, hey, go that away. It hasn't got any machine, it's got no app to tell it where to go. Some kind of energy is transmitting that's propelling it towards safety and security. Energies are happening. And these energies, again, are not lost. They're there, but we think on top of them and we think them out of existence, just like we exclude the deities and the cosmos and the, the fact that the cosmos is the world is sentient. We've excluded that. You know? We've excluded it from our field of respect and mutuality. And we, to some extent, we've excluded the energies of our body and mind from our, from our understanding. And we're operating in accordance with thoughts and what thoughts are telling us to do without recognizing what's happening in your energetic system. You're getting riled up. You're getting looped. You're going very distorted. You're feeling sluggish. You're feeling driven. And these are, once you refer to energy, you can see some of the coarser manifestations of it are very obvious. When there's mutuality, energy is received by people and it balances by itself. Being listened to, standing in presence and being listened to, energy settles. And this is yeah, being held in a, in a in safe way, energy settles. And of course, in Buddhist cultivation, you can find that energetic experience through various means, but mindfulness of breathing you know, is considered a main plank in that, to whereby your awareness withdraws from sense contact. It's not interested in that anymore. There's that, but this, this quality of subtle energy is much more satisfying, much more comfortable. If I'm looking for safe ground, which we are instinctively, hey, this is better. I don't have to go anywhere for it. It doesn't run away from me. I don't have to fight for it. It's happening. Everybody's got them. Yeah. You can't have anybody else's. So there's no competition, no fighting. And as the jitter open to that potential and rest in that potential, then the jitter, the heart awareness, withdraws from sense contact, withdraws from thinking, slows all that down, rests in this, and we get the experience called samadhi, or jhana, absorption. And the Buddha is saying, this is your most comfortable abiding place, where you can begin to insightfully review what's going on in terms of conditioned experience, grasping, clinging. And this leads you out of the world that you're somehow struggling to get hold of 
into a, a world that you are implicitly participating and inseparably involved with, but recognizing that cosmos has many different territories in it. Yeah. So we're able to, okay, there's a sense world, there's that. I acknowledge all that, but yeah, that's that. And then within that, not separate from it, the sense world rests on the energy that is, that is, that is your, your chitta is giving to it. Now, can you refine that to the point when you're resting in the energy of the heart itself? And Buddhist cultivation is, yes, you can. And you can refine it, steady and comfort it. And when you do this, okay, I mean, I'm moving pretty fast over this territory, but would ill will fit that? Oh, no. Would greed fit it? No, why bother? Would clinging to views fit it? Don't need to cling to a view. I'm safe, comfortable here. Would you find yourself jealous of other people? No, I've got mine, I'm fine. <laughs> would you be addicted to anything? Well, I might get addicted to this, I suppose, but that would, if you try, that would probably ruin it. But you can certainly either give up, you know, television, shopping, football, whatever. Why bother? So just this is really resetting the priorities. And from this place, when the chitta is open and comfortable, what arises from chitta are also sacred qualities. No longer the separate, excluded me sense, but the all-encompassing heart sense. Whereby natural radiances of goodwill um, occur and there's an innate stability. Um, well, thank you very much for your attention. And uh, um, I'll pause there. Okay, thank you. <laughs>